Big Fluff. This is John O'Hurley, and you're listening to Hobo Radio, where anything is possible. And now, your host, miniature dog enthusiast, Joel Murphy. Hello again. I'm Joel Murphy. This is Hobo Radio, and I'm very excited today to bring you my interview with Joel Swisson who has a new film that is available today called My Best Worst Adventure. And he is just a guy, he's a fascinating person to talk to. He's had decades-long career in Hollywood. Uh, he was a producer for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And he's uh, produced and written on so many great franchises, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Piranha 3D, The Children of the Corn, which we talk about quite a bit, just long career where he's touched all these different franchises. And uh, we got to talk about Bill and Ted. We got to talk about what it's like to come in as a writer and try to find new territory in one of these horror sequels. And then in a kind of beautiful ending, we got to talk about this new film, which is sort of his passion project where he wrote and directed it and is making something that's his. And I just think the whole thing is so cool to hear. I mean, obviously, I love hearing about any success stories, but specifically, this arc is great and honestly, one I aspire to. So, Hollywood, if you're listening and you now that he's gone on to do this, if someone needs the next writer for uh, Children of the Corn or, or Piranha or whatever, like just hit me up. I would love to have this his career because I... I, seriously, I just think this stuff is so cool, and he's a great guy. And so I hope you'll enjoy the interview, and I hope you'll check out his film, My Best Worst Adventure, which is, as I said, available today, on demand. And without further ado, here's my interview. I was curious. I was kind of, uh, well, they sent over your background and I was looking at it and I saw you, you did like Pratt for animation, then you use USC film studies and AFI for cinematography. So I was just, I saw all that and I was kind of curious. It seemed like I got the impression you were maybe trying to figure out what you wanted to do or bouncing around a little bit. So I was curious, like what you envisioned starting um, out. Yeah. Um, I'm the guy that went to way too many schools for way too much money and didn't graduate. <laughs> a parent's worst nightmare. So you didn't, you, know, you didn't finish any of those? Like those are all... No, no, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I, I have a resume of some very nice schools that I never uh, got any certification from. They sound nice. They do. Like I, I know all those schools. So. <laughs> but yeah, so what, what, did, what was in your head? Like what was the plan? Like what did you want to do? Oh, the plan was um, to be a painter. Oh, okay. Uh, which, which my father was, and um, I have his abilities divided by about four, uh, maybe twenty-five percent of what he can do. I can do, 
And so I realized that I probably wasn't going to make a big splash as a, as a painter, much as I wanted to, you know. Uh, so that was the beginning of the, you know, film being a visual medium and um, not reliant on my particular graphic skills. And, uh, and that's what got me into it. And um, I learned early on, you know, was, was less about um, being meandering in the course of my own ambitions. I wanted to be a cinematographer. I always did. Cause that, and that was like painting with film. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? And I'm still a failed cinematographer cause I've never gotten to shoot anything. Nobody will let me, um, which may be a message in and of itself, but, um, but I just knew getting into film that people were not interested in what I wanted to do. They were interested in what you can do for me. You know, and so I said, like, sure, I'll do anything you want. Um, so I pretty much did every job on a on a set before landing on a few. It is. It's interesting, too, because it's like I think for people who don't know, you know, they kind of like they're fans of movies, but they don't know a ton. Like a lot of what the cinematographer does, they think directors do. And I think people want to be directors. And it's like weirdly cinematographers don't really get the credit <laughs> that they deserve. They, they don't. Um Although, you know, there's inside the beltway, they certainly do because, you know, there are directors who are either ex cinematographers or like Stanley Kubrick know exactly what is in the frame and where it is and how it's lit and where every shadow lands. And they are, you know, the cinematographer is simply their tool. Yeah. But then there are other ones, particularly, uh, you know, not to disparage any particular group of people, but actors generally who come to, you know, the director chair are really not equipped to understand the, the, the real mechanics of, you know, designing an image. Right. Yeah. And they're probably more primarily concerned with the actors and the performance and that yeah. aspect of things. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's what's interesting. I think I'm still trying to always wrap my brain around it, but yeah, it seems like directors, it's sort of just like knowing what to delegate and what to be in charge of feels like. <laughs> Yeah, the well, skill. it is. It's every every role on a film, you know, can be owned or uh, usurped, uh, <laughs> depending on your own abilities. But you know, probably none more more so than the producer, who can be anybody from a guy controlling everything to you know the guy who has you know a coffee with the director once and says good luck. Well, that's a good place because, yeah, so I know one of the things, too, from your bio is that you are a producer for Bill and Ted uh, for the first one, right? Um, mm -hmm. So what, yeah. yeah, how did how did that come about and what was that experience like? That was um, very instructive for me on a lot of levels. I mean, we had a relationship, actually a development deal with a very famous Italian producer named Dino De Laurentiis. And... Um, um, he set us up with a what's called housekeeping deal where we just would develop films and he would pay us to hang around. And we had a development guy who landed this script called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which was no secret to Hollywood. It kicked around for a while. But no, as much as people were amused by it, nobody really wanted to risk anything on it. And Dino did, largely because being um, a... a an Italian who spoke very little English, he uh, was sort of reliant on us to tell him what it was about. And um, the only thing that really resonated for him was uh, he had done a film on Napoleon, um, 
a big Napoleon splashy epic, you know, battle movie. Um, and when he knew that Napoleon was in the film, we were like, we played that. Oh yeah, Napoleon's all through the film. I mean, it's, it's great. It's going to be so cool. And, um, uh, yeah, it was a matter of trust for him. And it was a matter of blown trust because when we, when he saw the finished product along with his, um, cadre of executives who were then as old as I am now, um, looking at it going, oh, we can't relate to this at all. This is just like not funny. It's not interesting. It's not anything. It's a disaster. And they just f got rid of it. They just, it was a $9 million movie. I think they sold it for about a million. Oh, wow. And, and um, this upstart little company called Nelson Entertainment, I think was their name. They took it to New Jersey and they test screened it. And it went through the roof. N nobody at our, you know, original studio had even had the confidence to gamble a couple thousand dollars on a test screening. They just like, and if they'd only known, right. obviously. Oh yeah, yeah, you imagine them like kicking themselves for that one. Yeah, but it, it taught me a, a good lesson, in, which is not to throw your child under the bus the first time somebody frowns at it, you know? It's just like, um, you, you gotta have faith in what you're doing if you truly believe in it and not be deterred. This whole idea of perseverance, which pervades everything we do in the film industry, it starts there. It's like believe in what you're doing. When it, it's so funny to be to hear that because I probably was squarely in the demographic. I was a kid when Bill and Ted came out and I absolutely adored Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey. And the funny thing is like, the the more I got into film and the more like I, I had this very distinct memory of going to college and taking like a world cinema class and uh, watching The Seventh Seal and being like, oh, my God, that's what they were parodying in Bill yes. and Ted, where it's like this this revelation of I thought it was funny and silly as a kid. And then looking back on it now, I'm like, really smart people wrote a really dumb movie. And I think that that's so impressive. Like the jokes of what what is true for each character. Again, you mentioned Napoleon. It's like, what's funny about Napoleon? You send him to a water park called Waterloo. <laughs> like just <laughs> the like realizing that, yeah, like that you could make a movie that smart that that's dumb is still yeah, amazing well, to me. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you put it that way because, you know, so much of what we've been blamed for with that movie, because it's not universally loved. Some people just don't add the smart part. They just think it's so excruciatingly dumb that it's 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 a blight on our, our youth culture, that it's <laughs> going to turn all of our, our kids into morons. And um, I wish I was that that influence, <laughs> uh, that much of an influencer, I guess is the word. <laughs> Um, I think it's, the but, funny thing is that it's probably the opposite is you probably tricked me into learning more about history than I. <laughs> yeah, who are these people? <laughs> yeah. What the hell is Genghis Khan anyway? Yeah. So he likes, he likes to destroy shopping malls. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. It, I, it, the guys who wrote it, uh, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, I just, I give them genius status for their stupidity. I mean, they knew exactly what you're saying is how to, make the most fun out of they're both needless to say they're both just incredibly bright and understand history better than most historians but they just knew how to idiotify it yeah also i mean was that that was pretty early for was that like the first prominent keanu reeves role like did you guys sort of like 
Um, discover him or a lot of people gave us credit for discovering Keanu. That's not really true. I mean, we did pick him out of an audition and he was, he embodied uh, instantly. I mean, there's very few times in an audition where everybody just goes, we don't have to look any further for that character. It was him, but he had done a film, I think called the river's edge. If you remember that at all, I know the name of it, but yeah, I'm not, it was dark, and as I recall, he it, it dealt with a, a teen suicide. I think so. It was not. It wasn't exactly the precursor of Bill and Ted, but um, it proved. I mean, he was a gifted actor. I I I was marveling, and still do a little bit that Keanu has so many chops, and I saw them all, you know, in in his auditioning and and on set, but he went on to play two characters really it was like dopey and dour <laughs> yeah it's been interesting this like recent john wick kind of <laughs> chapter of his career but it, he's a fascinating guy because i feel like he's one of the few people in hollywood that is just universally beloved like everyone oh, seems incredibly fond of him uh mm -hmm. but yeah and it's it really is too i mean he's it's great true. but also that the relationship with him and alex winter i think is so key to the movie too but Alex took such a different trajectory because he was always, um, you know, he's so much better than this. And I, I hesitate to even say it, but we're, we'll, we'll keep this our secret right now. But um, I mean, we cast him because he was Sean Penn from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, he, he embodied all of that. Right. Yeah. And but it became, I think, a as often happens with when you when you're successful at something and you become sort of a little typecast um and i think he wasn't getting the roles that he wanted because he is a breakout creative talent on so many levels and he went off and started making um these vanguard uh avant-garde experimental movies and documentaries too like i know he's been doing and documentaries yeah. well he's got gotten into some docs now i think but um he just wanted to explore the art, the medium as an art form. Yeah. And um, that was just a completely different way to go after Bill and Ted. But I was totally respect it. I admire him for it. It was interesting, too. I almost like I was a little trepidatious when the, the new Bill and Ted came out to face the music. But like it, it actually turned out to be quite delightful. I know that you weren't probably involved with that. But I, I look at it as like uh, the grandfather, you know, <laughs> you know, the the kids got out there, they did something and then they did something and uh, yeah, it feels good. It's got to be validating. So it's still alive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It still resonates after all these years like that. That's got to feel good. Uh, I, well, I was curious too, like, because it seems like a lot of your work is um, like being involved with these other franchises, like where you've sort of worked on uh, stuff that mm -hmm. was pre-established by other people. Uh, so I was curious from that perspective, like, what is that? That's got to be a very tricky thing to to write a sequel to something that's already it established. It is. Um, there's pretty much why I'd say two thirds of my career has either been starting a franchise and, and continuing it or uh, coming on to someone else's franchise and trying to keep it alive. And they're two, the same set of challenges because you're really looking to, you know, um, not disappoint the fans and that's that's a fool's game because just the act of making a sequel is going to enrage fans and um 
That was one of the nice things of, about doing this. Um, my best worst adventure movie is that that it's unique unto itself. But in doing in doing a sequel, you're trying to keep a story alive, and it's it's not so hard on you know number two, number three, maybe even number four. I've done Children of the Corns that are now in what. 12, 14, <laughs> right. I mean, whatever. And, and so, okay, the children and there's corn. Sometimes <laughs> there's more corn and sometimes more children, but, but throw a sickle in there. And how much else can you do? And, and I consider myself more creative than not, but um, I certainly don't pretend that I, I found the, the golden fleece with, with children of the corn well, we stopped using Roman numerals at a certain point because it gets kind of crazy. So we just add like resurrections and Genesis and <laughs> and dawning and awakenings and the suckinings and whatever it is. But um, but I was eviscerated by like every time I would make a sequel, like the the very people who raced out to see it first would just say that that you know whoever was involved in making this film should be condemned to die a thousand deaths. Like what I did was worse than what, what bin Laden did. <laughs> and, um, and I'm going, and, and it's now sequel, what 14 and you're still watching them. Right. <laughs> and you've been hating on them ever since the second, third sequel. I mean, isn't there something you're the one that might need some help? <laughs> right. Yeah. How much of your life is 13 children of the corn? <laughs> is this like the worst gambling game where like one day I'm going to roll lucky, lucky sevens and, and I'm going to see a great children of the corn sequel. Um, I, I think it's good luck with that. <laughs> I think it's such a tricky thing, too, because it's like you can't you're it's a very to me, a very narrow window of you can't do anything too unrecognizable you know what i mean you can't like reinvent right. nobody wants to see your reinvent there's no corn this time to do yeah. there's yes. no corn there's no children <laughs> like we're reinventing yeah. it but also they don't want to see the exact same movie so they want to see the same movie but slightly different like, there's a, there's a sweet spot i'm not sure what it is but obviously given given some of my feedback <laughs> but um but you're right you can't go too close or too far um, yeah, you can ride your tricycle to the end of the driveway, but that's it. <laughs> I almost like envision a Mad Libs at some point where you're like looking at the script, like they die in a blank with a blank. <laughs> I would love to do that. In fact, that reminds me of something I'm probably also going to get in trouble for. But way back in the day, um, there was a movie called Cursed. Did you ever hear of it? Uh, no, I'm not, I don't know. A werewolf movie, Wes Craven did it um and um it was uh not successful to say the least and that's probably why you haven't seen it but it was a expensive bust and so in order to get some kind of um um extra mileage out of the movie it had starred skeet ulrich and christina ricci okay yeah yeah but um I think they cut Skeet Ulrich out, if I'm not mistaken, because his character just didn't work in the film for whatever reason. And and ultimately, the audiences that watched it said, well, we don't love the film because we don't want this to be a werewolf film. So that didn't help much. 
Um, so my bosses at the time said, all right, we have all this footage of Skeet Ulrich. I want you to make a new movie with him. <laughs> all the footage that we shot talking to somebody and you're going to write the other half of the movie, two thirds of the movie, really. Um, and we'll give you a couple few million to do it. Um, but it was a fantastic case like you're talking about, almost a Mad Lib thing where you're, you're going, OK, there's Skeet saying, I don't know what we're going to do about this problem to a person who was Christina Ricci. And all I've got to do is find somebody who has the same hair over shoulder shot that <laughs> I can I could fit into that shot. And then she's going to have to say something completely different from the curse script. <laughs> and so you're actually weaving an entire different narrative, adhering it to the dialogue of one character that's already been filmed. That, that's so that's literally uh, UCB has a show called Gravid Water, where one of the actors has lines memorized from a play and then one person is an improviser and they have to That's respond. That's yeah. it was. I, I'm so, so I want to see this because I was both horrified and I've never been so inspired in my life as a writer. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I hear that. And I love the like, yeah, as a writer, that's probably the greatest challenge you're ever going to get. Cause it's, it's, it's a gauntlet. Yeah. yeah. Like, you can do this. Yeah. The Gordian knot. Yeah. Well, because then it's funny, too, because, yeah, you can have the person respond however you want, but then Skeet Ulrich, he's going to respond how he already is. Always so the same. <laughs> yeah. You can't change a line of him. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I kind of want to see this movie now. Like, I. It all, oh, it came so close and then it didn't get made because um, right at that moment, um, Dimension and uh, Disney. Miramax and Disney, uh, the Weinsteins and Disney split up. That's what happened. And so they went their separate ways and the movie fell into the canyon in the middle. Probably <laughs> to the betterment of, of film history, I would think. But I was like, I went to all this effort to, to make the movie and, and it was sort of sad. Well, it really wasn't that bad at the end. It kind of made sense. <laughs> No, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Like, um, I would imagine, has that happened to you a lot in your career? Like you, you've been working for so long. Like if you, do you, are there a lot of movies that we've never seen that are in someone's, you know, some company collapsed or something happened and they didn't come out? I'm trying to think, has a movie I've ever made been completely shelved? Um, if I'd had the money to buy up every, every copy, it, there are some that should have been, but I don't think that. <laughs> Now they think about it. I don't know. Um, there's a few scripts that I wrote that actually didn't get made, but that's another thing for my career. I've got a lot of spec scripts that are just genius level in my own head, of course. Sure. Yeah. Um, They're always great in your head. <laughs> I know. Aren't they? But, but the ones that I'm asked to make by like an employer, like a work for hire, they all get made. Right. Yeah. So, and they're not always my best stuff. In fact, usually not. Right. So that's, that's the, the, the weird paradox of my career is all my best stuff is sitting on a flash drive somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, that seems like the perfect segue to my best worst adventure. Cause this seems like I want to, was this a spec script? Is this, this seems like a departure from the other stuff. So was this, this is this one of the, in every way, Yeah, in every way it was a departure because it, it was the, 
death scream of a guy that was drowning in, in genre sequels. Um, and I was doing a, a, a genre film in Bangkok and um, the director, excuse me, the, the producer of that, I was the director, the producer of the film was telling me this little story about growing up in the north of Thailand, um, racing water buffaloes as a kid. And it's, it's an insane sport that I had known. I knew nothing about water buffalo racing. These things are as fast as horses and you ride them bareback and just hope that you can hang on. Cause if you fall off, you're very likely going to get trampled. Oh, wow. And, um, that to me is, um, a little provocative and a little scary, but I just had this notion that it would make a really great kind of transposed sports story, like a, a sea biscuity kind of thing or a national velvet where you, you take the whole horse racing mythos and transplant it into this completely alien world where life takes on a completely different set of values. And, um, and I, the, my hook into it was taking this um, disaffected 13-year-old girl from L.A. who's like doesn't get along with anybody and has stopped speaking, period, that she goes and has to live. She's been exiled to live with her, her weird Thai grandmother in the in the backwoods of Thailand. And um, and it's like almost a genre movie for me because it's 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 an it's a a, a human on an alien planet. And slowly learning how to, to to survive emotionally and physically, and and so it it it's kind of that fish out of water tale, although it's a different fish in different water than I think we've ever seen before. And that's that's what excited me, and the fact that the person putting up the money wasn't looking for a formula; that was looking for just like I love the script, I love the whole milieu just make the film you want to make and don't worry about what others are telling you to do. And I've never in, in the years and decades that I've been making films, I've never heard anybody tell me that before. And it was liberating because I felt for the first time that I was a filmmaker. Yeah. That's crazy. Like that you've had that long of a career and this is the first, the lesson there, if, <laughs> if anything is uh, the turtle sometimes gets across the finish line, but, <laughs> Um, not always, I suppose. What was there a big, uh, learning curve for you? Like, you know, cause I would imagine you were a bit of a fish out of water making this that film. I, I felt there were so many synergies in the film that it just felt right on, on so many different levels. Of course, everybody's back home telling me foreign language, children and animals. Really? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that how you want to go out? <laughs> And I said, yes, if that ended the, the pain of having to do Children of the Corn 15, <laughs> I will embrace it. And so, um, so I did. And, and uh, it, it was an adaptive process because it was all Thai crew, very little English spoken, a lot of sign language, a lot of like using mutually understood symbols. Like if I wanted a person to be um, like tough and, and taciturn, I, I like John Wayne, you know, for the older guys and they get it. Uh, and then more contemporary um, references for the younger ones. Um, but somehow we got through it and um, the actress herself had never been in a film before. Um, she 
had never acted before in anything. And she was kind of a runaway from, she was truant from school that day, I think, and just wandered into a casting session. It wasn't like she was solicited or invited or anything. It was like, I would, I'd like to try out for this. And it was sort of magic. You know, you saw that she wasn't just an actress playing a role that she was so close, that was so close to her surface, you know, of who she was. And, um, yeah, that that just all those things sort of clicked into place. They don't always, but in that particular case, it did. How Same long? How long was the filming? Um, about three weeks, I think, three and a half. Okay, so um, really we short. had a very small crew, and you know, um, moving around by ox cart. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, gave me time to think. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, did you get feedback from the locals? Like, was there any kind of bouncing off to try to make sure? That you yes. Um, and there there were a couple conflicts and only once did I really get in trouble with a cultural misstep. And it was because I just insisted on it. There's a point when one of the kids um, basically doesn't win win so much as survive <laughs> one of these races and um the the town chieftain um the the who's sort of a a gangster king in this town that runs everything goes up to this kid and there's a thing in in thai culture and many southeastern cultures called the why it's where you put your hands together and you bend forward and that's your sign of respect um, and I had him do it to this little kid and they were furious, the, everybody, because you never, why someone younger or of lower station than you, you only suck upwards when you're doing that kind of thing. And, um, but it was such a powerful moment because it was so not done, it was so, right. you know, outside the cultural acceptability that I thought it made it more powerful that this guy went up and actually did it to a child. The child was so heroic in a sense that he deserved to be treated with the respect accorded somebody equal to this chieftain. Right. And that's how I rationalized it. They didn't because there's certainly like, you know, there's no, and there's no. Right. So, <laughs> so I ended up, exceeding to them and he starts to put his hands together um and then we cut to the kid and uh his hands come apart again and like it's a little weird maybe <laughs> but um it was a compromise yeah yeah I, yeah i would imagine that stuff you you want to try to be as respectful as possible cultural sensitivity is important because we we come in with our imperious notions that we're first world and we know what it, what's what and right. you guys are just like lost in the dark ages and they're so much more sophisticated in so many different ways than we are and we could certainly learn a little bit of, about tolerance yeah. from from the ties in particular so what uh where is it at now like what is what's the process now so you, it's finished and it's about to... it's finished it's going to be um on pay-per-view vod uh starting september 1st so you can find it by using your little qwerty thing and 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 telling your TV you want my best worst adventure and it'll come up. Um, and then later in the month, I think, or early next, I don't know the exact dates yet, we're going to be streaming to all the, the predictable streaming services. 
um, it's a shame in a little bit because, you know, the theatrical world is just not happening for independent films right now. So we're not going that way. But we had a great run of, of um, film festivals. And just to see people respond in the film festivals where they actually get on their feet and yell um, and cry and all that and laughing and all that good stuff that you miss as a filmmaker, you know, and it was just really satisfying to be a part of something like that. Yeah, I would imagine for for indie films, yeah, that it's that that part's probably vital to word of mouth to like actually generating. There used to be good indie theaters everywhere, and they're just fewer and farther between. And COVID is as decimated even further what's left. And um, that's that's our discussion for another day: is <laughs> what do we do now? You know. Do you, do you think this has ruined you, though? Or can you go back to, to Children of the Corn 15? Or is this? Uh, yes, it has. I have, uh, <laughs> I have learned a word that wasn't in my lexicon until about a year and a half ago, which is no. <laughs> uh, before then, it was like, there, there's. I think we all feel it. Anybody involved in film is it's just the the. the act of being a party to it, no matter what you're doing, is so seductive. I'm making a movie, even if it's the same rugrats running around a cornfield with sickles. <laughs> right. It's still a movie. You're just getting off on the process. And I finally broke through that going, yeah, but, you know, some processes are more worthy than others. Right. And I think I think it's time to drive a stake into some of the franchises that I've been maintaining way too long. <laughs> well, at some point you got to make new franchises. We can't just. Yes. <laughs> yes. I will do Buffalo Rider too. If somebody <laughs> gives me that opportunity. Uh, so happily. Yeah. Is there anything else uh, that you're working on now or nothing? I'm uh, I just finished a script. That, that was the beauty of the shutdown is all I had to do is write and I didn't have to do anything else, which um, I'm, I'm uh, temperamentally suited to be a writer. I'm, unfortunately economically driven to do other things as well but <laughs> um um a script i wrote uh which was a kind of a loose adaptation of the magnificent seven with danny oh. trejo as kind of the yul brenner character uh we're uh, we're making in september 13th we start shooting in oklahoma and that's got me excited and terrified at the same time because it's one of those like hotbeds of covid covidity yeah um and then another one i'm i'm on instead of doing tawdry sequels i'm now on to, to stealing people's ideas and remaking them <laughs> so um this one i'm doing in south africa later in the year is a is a reimagining of the treasure of the sierra madre the oh, okay. bogart film that, i actually just watched that this year i had never seen it and i i watched it like during quarantine like during covid i just i just enjoyed it because it was just I, I saw all the aspects of greed and distrust that sort of underpin it to be so present today and i could i could update it oh. and make it a sort of a today story and not lose anything and gain maybe something as well that is uh, one of the things I've always loved about horror as a genre. And, and I think, you know, with this is like the ability to do these sort of tragic, you know, we don't do a lot of, uh, you know, tragedies in American cinema. A lot of times, like we, we tend mm -hmm. to lean towards happier endings, but horror is like the one genre that you can always get away with, like a dark yes. ending. And and yeah, Treasure of the Sierra Madre is 
dark. Like that it's movie. really dark. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised watching it how how dark like it actually. It and when you think about it, I mean, the, the character uh, at that point, Bogey was an established um, superstar. Yeah, and, and the fact that he allowed himself to be depicted as. I kept waiting the first time I saw the movie, like, okay, when's he redeem himself? Right. Yeah. You think he's going to be the hero. And in fact, he leans further and further into just madness. He doubles down on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. You know? And that is, that is probably, a, I, so much of, of my career as a horror guy, not always a horror guy, but quite often, it carries over into other stuff. You know, I've carried horror into even my best, worst adventure. There, there are horror moments. And that intrigues me. The dark, the dark edges of humanity are, are that's, that's the best part of horror. It's not so much the, you know, the removing of body parts, right? It's the plumbing of the human psyche and realizing that we all have those little, little demons that we don't want to express all the time. Yeah, no, it's like that. That's 100% always been my appeal is that like, yeah, it, the, these extreme moments that put people like zombies aren't scary. How humans react to zombies are scary yes, kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, that's really fun. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I had not seen that, but man, that that's a cool project. Like I, you have to keep me posted on that one for sure. I'm looking forward to it. I, I can't yeah. wait to come back and talk about it a little bit with you. All right, cool. Well, what's uh, is there a good way for people to follow you? Like if they want to keep track of all this stuff or, um, you know, I am going, I'm developing some additional social media because that's, um, something I do really badly. Yeah, um, I know I was but, searching for you before we talked to you. <laughs> There's not a lot of out there. I noticed. No, I, I, uh, I, I had a Wikipedia, uh, page generated not to my knowledge, I never really checked my name on the on the internet until a certain point where I looked up my name and saw that I was on Wikipedia and an interview that I had done um, years before that for a Australian uh, writer. Um, I had done a self-effacing quote that I later um, explained. Then I'm not going to give you the boring explanation, but the quote was. Um, I've bankrupted every company I've ever worked for. <laughs> and the fact was every company I'd ever worked for up at that point eventually did go bankrupt, but it was really yeah. my d direct doing. Right, right. <laughs> but so my Wikipedia page started with that. Joel Swasson has bankrupted every <laughs> company he's ever worked for. And I, I, I had at the time hit, sort of hit a dry spell with my, with my employment prospects and I'm going, the first thing somebody sees when they when they they pull up my name is that 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 might be a little bit of a career killer. So I started at that point knowing I need to manage my presence a little bit. But um, so we have just to answer your question, we have a, a, a Facebook page, my best worst adventure, um, and I think we have a Twitter handle of the same name. And um, I think if you if you type in the name of the the film, you'll find links to. Um, all sorts of stuff. We've been getting some really good reviews lately, which I'm happy about. And and the me of it all, I'm just like I'm I'm an IMDb guy, and then I'm I'm gonna break down one of these days and actually be a Facebook guy, and and I'm gonna then go to Twitter soon. But I got to do that. It's like and then eventually TikTok. You gotta work. <laughs> Not until I get my twerking down. <laughs> I, I, I've got to get a little better at performance. But, um, 
but yeah, the, the Wikipedia stuff is so funny. One of the weird claims to fame of the interviews that I've done here is that for a long time, I interviewed Charlie Day uh, from It's Always Sunny. Mm-hmm. And he joked that he was the tallest member of the cast, but he hunches. And that became <laughs> a, just like your thing. Like that was then listed on Wikipedia and other places where like I would get all these hits from like he said in this interview that he's actually tall and he hunches for comedy. And I was like, that's not. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you have to be careful what you say now. And it's um, unfortunately probably what I've said and done filmically and, and otherwise um, probably is not going to allow me to run for for office now but, that's you're um, you're better off you don't want to run for office like i have a feeling i am better <laughs> off yeah but just just yesterday i was telling somebody about like the first film i ever worked on what did you do well i was running explosives across the border <laughs> for a producer because because he didn't want to risk like having real people do it so <laughs> you were expendable <laughs> so it was me with with a bunch of explosives in the in the trunk of a of an old dodge going Across the border and then having to meet a guy named Pedro on the other side. And, and it was just pure mafia stuff. <laughs> and I, I don't even know, I, they're going to use it for explosives on a set down in, in Mexico somewhere of triumphs of the man called horse three or something. I don't remember, but uh, that was just back in the days when you don't ask, you just say yes to everything you're asked for. Right. I got 75 bucks. What did I care? <laughs> Yeah, 75 bucks. And also there's zero chance of you get stopped and anyone is buying that story. So, yes, exactly. And then um, now that I'm sure now that I've said this twice in one week, it's going to be my lead offline in Wikipedia. I can go. Do you want me to edit it for you? I can get rid of the bankruptcy thing if you want to lead with the explosives. (laughs) I already got rid of the bankruptcy thing. I think I can edit out the explosives things as well. And just leave brilliant filmmaker respected and revered by millions. Yeah, as long as you don't get a source needed for that, because then that that looks bad. <laughs> it does look bad. Well, it, but not if you say it. You would be my source then. All right. What is it? Do you want me? I can say it officially. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'll do just about anything, but force people to perjure themselves. That's I can, can. Can I say it to Skeet Ulrich? That's really what I. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, man. No, this was a lot of fun. And seriously, uh, keep me posted like anything in the future, by all means, even if it is Children of the Corn 15. Like this is fun. So the only way you're going to get notified of Children of the Corn 15 is through a suicide note. (laughs) Oh, man, I don't want that to be my claim of fame. Like he was mentioned in the suicide note. It'll be a great it'll be a great bit for your podcast. Yeah, I I think you'll they'll love it. Cool. All right, man. There you go. My interview with Joel Swazan, like I said, could have talked to him all day. Such an interesting guy. Such a cool career. Check out My Best Worst Adventure. It's on demand today. And if you enjoyed that interview, go to hobotrashcan.com. Check out the archives. There's a lot of other stuff uh, there for you to enjoy. So make sure to check that out. And that's going to do it for me this week. So remember, question everything. Tried to compose a song for you When 
sun once on a hill and knew a feeling of being young but then a tear fell from my eye as I tried to see beyond I heard a story of a man who was brave and caught a beast but then the story faded away when I came home and had a Turned to see beyond the glass I followed a hollow through the wall But when I stood and turned around My face was fixed in a desperate call I found myself in an ancient song I tried to catch the words I dreamt It sprang out free when I was young Before I found out of the end. Hobo Radio is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on iTunes. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. In a world where people watch movies. I think I'm gonna watch a movie. Sometimes they don't like what they see. I don't like this movie. But sometimes they look for the silver lining. Wait a second. I like this part of this movie. Joel and Andy, do that work for you. The Silver Linings Playback. I like this part of this podcast where they tell me the part of the movie I like. Every Monday on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.